It's Wednesday, September 11th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump has ousted his third national security advisor, John Bolton, and in typical fashion, made the announcement on Twitter. The president asked for his resignation after major disagreements over how to handle big foreign policy issues like Iran, North Korea, and Afghanistan. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, joins us for how it all played out. Next, it sounds like a great program. Free money with no strings attached. Universal basic income is getting a lot of attention as some 2020 Democratic hopefuls have touted the idea as a way to reduce wealth inequality and cities like Stockton, California and Jackson, Mississippi are currently undertaking some pilot programs. Robert Samuels, reporter for The Washington Post, joins us for how one program in Mississippi is working out. Finally, a long-held monster myth may finally be put to rest. New evidence suggests that Loch Ness in Scotland contains no monster DNA. Using a new technique to analyze the environmental DNA of the lake, scientists identified 3,000 species of plants, animals, and bacteria, but no monsters. Jason Gilchrist, ecologist at Edinburgh Napier University in Scotland, joins us to talk about the Loch Ness Monster. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The president asked for Ambassador Bolton's resignation, as I understand it. The president's entitled to the staff that he wants at, 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 any, at any moment. This is a staff person who works directly for the president of the United States, and he, he should have people that he trusts and values and whose uh, efforts and judgments benefit him in delivering American foreign policy. Joining us now is Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. Thanks for joining us, Steph. Thanks for having me. President Trump's third national security advisor, John Bolton, has been fired although there's a little bit of back and forth as to how exactly that happened. Uh, the president announced it, as he has done for a lot of cabinet departures, uh, did this as uh, uh, announced this over a tweet. Uh, Steph, tell us how this all happened. Yeah, so this is something that a lot of us have been expecting for a while now. It's kind of been uh, known that Trump and Bolton don't always get along, but we weren't ever sure when was going to be the last day that Bolton would be the national security advisor. And again, this afternoon, we heard from the president himself through Twitter, as we've seen for a few departures from the White House. And he said that he has disagreed with many of Bolton's suggestions, as did others in the administration, and that he asked for Bolton to resign and that Bolton gave his resignation the next morning that he thanked him for his service. But again, we saw Bolton push back on Twitter saying that, no, 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 Trump didn't tell him to resign. He offered his resignation the night before and then the next morning actually turned in his resignation, which Trump accepted. So we do know that Bolton is pushing back on the idea that he was fired or pushed out from the White House and that it was his own initiative. So there's still some uncertainty as to how exactly that out. And that tweet that John Bolton fired off was 12 minutes after President Trump fired off his tweet. So he wanted to try to set the record straight as much as he could in, in his own eyes. And even a Washington Post reporter, Robert Costa, chimed in on Twitter saying that Bolton sent him a message saying, let's be clear, I resigned last night. So I mean, just this kind of back and forth was Par for the course, I guess, for the Trump administration, play, things playing out on Twitter mm -hmm. that way. This comes at an interesting time. There's a lot of things going on on the foreign policy arena, and losing another national security advisor is pretty tough. I think someone reported that Trump is going to be the first president to have four national security advisors mm -hmm. in his first term. 
And that's something that we do see over and over again in this administration, that people who just don't jive with the president, who are butting heads with the president or don't sign on to the president's agenda, end up leaving. And we've seen kind of that high turnover at the White House over and over again in multiple positions, and especially this position. And of course, it's important because this is one of the biggest positions that really faces the outside world, where the U.S. is really represented on the global stage. And it'll be interesting to see who Trump picks next and which direction he goes in next. And I think it'll give us a good sense of what he wants to get done internationally in this last year before the 2020 election. And of course, Bolton was one of the most hawkish foreign policy advisors in the White House. And to lose him, I think, could have a very significant change in the way the Trump White House deals with foreign policy issues. Where did it all go wrong for them? I know a lot of it centers around issues with Iran and North Korea. As we reported a little bit ago that Trump would kind of joke on Bolton with foreign leaders, kind of joking about how he wants to get into a war. There's never been a war that he doesn't like. And these kind of joking mannerisms about John Bolton's national security emphasis. And they really did butt heads on a lot of things. And like you said, Iran was a big one that, of course, recently that has been ongoing where Bolton would really want to be tough on Iran, where Trump really likes the deal-making way of things. North Korea has also been a big point of tension where Trump continues to want to woo the North Koreans, whereas Bolton would say, no, they can't be trusted at all. And of course, most recently, with the president inviting the Taliban to Camp David in the U.S., that was another thing most recently that flared up that Bolton was opposed to, was reportedly opposed to. That created some more recent tension between the two. Yeah, on Iran, I know that the two butted heads against the airstrike that was called off after Iran shot down the American drone. John Bolton was in favor of that airstrike. And then he's never been a fan of the president meeting with Kim Jong-un, especially after they met in the demilitarized zone, because he just doesn't trust anybody. And the question after that is, how does this make us look in the eyes of our foreign adversaries? Because Uh, An advisor to President Hassan Rouhani in Iran has said that Bolton's departure was a result of Iran's resistance to Trump's maximum pressure campaign. He said that it's proof that they're able to manage U.S. policies on Iran. This certainly is going to change the way that these nations view the U.S. It certainly throws an element of uncertainty, whether there will still be kind of this hawkish advisor who is pushing Trump to be tough on these countries. And I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, because when it comes to foreign policy, the president kind of has two instincts. And one is to be really tough on nations that have been bad actors, that have hurt Americans and who threaten American security. But at the same time, he is a deal maker and he likes the diplomacy of getting to know these powerful foreign leaders. And of course, there's also the fact that he wants to draw down troops from Afghanistan. So he has this mixture of foreign policy instincts that seem to be um, in conflict with one another. And it'll be interesting to see who he chooses as his next national security advisor. Got to wait till next week. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Basic income could help in so many instances. Giving someone monthly cash would instill a sense of breathing room. I think it should be unconditional. I think we should trust people to know that to know what it is that they need. Joining us now is Robert Samuels, national political reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Robert. It's great to be here. Thank you. 
there's been a lot of talk about different ideas, uh, things called a universal basic income or guaranteed income. You've been hearing it from 2020 Democratic candidates like Andrew Yang. I think Kamala Harris also has a similar plan. Uh, and this is basically, in a nutshell, giving citizens free money, $500 or $1,000, no strings attached. You can use it as you want. And they hope that it will spur some type of uh, economic boost for these families, people that are receiving this and help lift them out of poverty. Robert, you wrote an article about a pilot program that happened in Jackson, Mississippi. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, the pilot program was run by a nonprofit there where they are giving 20 single mothers who are African-American living in housing projects in Jackson $1,000 a month for a year. And the program is trying to see just how this money will change the lives of the women. What is the opposition to programs like this? And what do people who you know want to try these experiments out, what are they saying it's going to do? Well, people who oppose programs like this fear that it will cost too much money. The proposal that Andrew Yang has put forward would cost the federal government trillions of dollars. There are similar money that would be spent by Kamala Harris, who has this proposal that's a little bit different, but goes along the same wealth, as well as Cory Booker. So there's the money issue, but there's also a philosophical issue that it's just wrong in America. It seems a little socialist to give people money if they didn't work for it. Part of the thought process was that people would get this free money and they would stop working or they would just live off of that. They wouldn't keep trying to pursue other avenues, other jobs, things like that. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a New Yorker, and one of the things that we were often told when we were growing up in New York was you shouldn't give people money on the street because they're just going to spend it on drugs or they're going to abuse the privilege, and you'll take away the incentive that they have to start working. For people who support universal basic income or these guaranteed income plans, they see things a little differently. What they're saying is that that extra money gives families a flexibility to spend to pay their bills in ways that they see fit. That's different from some of the government benefit programs, things like food stamps and housing vouchers, where there are work requirements, there are time limitations, and there are just restrictions by the very nature of it on how families spend that money. Yeah, if you get more money somewhere else, some money is taken away from another program. So in these cases, this universal basic income, guaranteed income, this is on top of all that. You wouldn't lose any of those things. So, And that's where a lot of uh, people that are trying to sign up for these programs say they need it. You know, I just need that extra bit of cash. I still need the other assistance that I have because I'm barely floating with that. But I need this extra bit right here. And here's the thing that's interesting about it, Oscar, that in this program in Jackson, Mississippi, because it was a privately funded program through a nonprofit agency, the women who are eligible, they had to make a choice. They knew that if they got this extra money, they would lose a big chunk of those government benefits, those welfare support. And in the cases of the women who chose the program, they said they would rather have the free money that was flexible without strings than use the government programs that have lots of strings attached to them. So this program here in Jackson, Mississippi, there was 110 women that were eligible to be part of this program. Only 38 people applied. And in the end, they selected 20 women. This experiment started in November 2018. So everybody would get about $12,000 in a year. 
how has this program progressed? What's been going on? Because they have to check in monthly also and see how the progress is being made. So how has this been going? The money is completely free. There are no strings. So they can check in if they want to. If they don't want to, they don't have to. But a number of the women like to talk about what's been going on with them. So at first, the women spent the money really quickly because they had overdue bills. The thrill of getting new, the thrill of getting this financial benefit uh, led them some bought cars. They got a more extravagant Christmas gifts. And then you saw them starting to save the money in very diligent ways. Some of them decided to go back to school and get better jobs. One woman who is profiled in the story He was so into the idea of savings. He had never had a savings account before. The money allowed her to do that. She got another job so she could save more money. So in nine months, she saved about $13,000, which I thought was actually pretty impressive. So there are lots of ways to do it. Women are using the money. But the most interesting thing is for people who have been working with the mothers, they say the most distinct difference is that they walk around with a feeling of levity that they did not have previously because there is a greater sense of security that they can afford their lives. Robert Samuels, national political reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Have a good day. always been this idea that there's some giant extinct reptile that has somehow survived in Loch Ness and been swimming around here. We don't find any reptilian DNA. We don't find any evidence of plesiosaurs or lasmosaurs. We also don't find a lot of the giant fish that have been put forward as ideas, giant catfish, sturgeons, but we do find an awful lot of eels. Joining us now is Jason Gilchrist, ecologist and lecturer at Edinburgh Napier University in Scotland. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about the Loch Ness Monster. There's new DNA evidence that may prove what the Loch Ness Monster really is. This is one of the myths that has been going around for a long time. And scientists use this new technique of gathering environmental DNA, or eDNA as it's known, to basically survey all of the water where the Loch Ness Monster should be living, I guess and uh, see exactly what animals and plants and bacteria actually live there. Tell us a little bit about what this study did. So Yeah, this is by Professor Neil Gemmell and colleagues at Otago University in New Zealand. And so they conducted what is the most comprehensive uh, survey of Loch Ness. And essentially, their aim is to evaluate the biodiversity of the loch. So they've collected over 200 one-litre water samples from shallow water, from deep water, and then they've analyzed those water samples essentially by extracting the eDNA that you've mentioned from the samples, and then they compare the eDNA from the samples with essentially a library or a reference collection of the DNA of known species in order to work out what's living in the loch. In this study, they detected over 500 million DNA sequences and 3,000 species that would be living in there or around it as well. So if there was some weird monster DNA that popped up and showed up in the study, they'd be able to see it there. The quick answer to that question is yes. The problem with this science is you can never say for 100% that you've detected every single individual organism that is within the loch. To do that, you'd have to sample every single litre of water that was in the loch. Right. 
But what the results do suggest, because they've detected a number of terrestrial or land-living species which will live around the loch, um, so badgers, uh, deer, small mammals like voles and the likes, the fact that they've managed to detect the presence in and around the loch of those animals, which will be relatively rare visitors to the loch, means that if there is a monster <laughs> or any other species which is actually pervasive or permanently living in the loch, that's a pretty good indication that they should have been able to detect it, yes. And so what's the prevailing theory of what it might have been? So Professor Gemmel in the press conference earlier in the week was suggesting that the plausible explanation from the data that they've collected that might explain the eyewitness accounts of monsters and the loch that have been reported over the years, that it could possibly be giant eels. I'm not a huge fan of that as an explanation. And if I can use a terrible pun, I kind of see it as a red herring. And that the principal basis for suggesting that as a plausible explanation appears to be that eel DNA was found in large quantities right across all the samples that they collected. Now, yeah, one possible interpretation of that is that there is a giant eel, but a far more plausible explanation of the plausible explanation is simply that there's lots of eels in the loch. And I guess the thought is that we all know that kind of famous picture of the Loch Ness Monster, of what people think is the Loch Ness Monster, has a big, long neck sticking out of the water. And uh, you know, I guess the theory is a long eel might kind of look like that. So that's probably why that's the prevailing theory. Yes, that and the fact that eel DNA has been found. Professor Gemmel and colleagues can say with 100% certainty that there are eels there because they've detected it. So the photograph that you've described and many of the contemporary eyewitness accounts, so the eyewitness accounts from about the 1930s onwards, are often associated with essentially plesiosaur-type anatomy or shape, being an ancient marine reptile that was around at about the same time as the dinosaurs. There is a theory that essentially the fact that eyewitnesses believe that they're seeing this sort of anatomy or shape of an animal is actually linked to plesiosaurs coming into popular culture through paleontology, through the discovery of fossils of plesiosaurs and then their representation within the popular media. So the key point to make there is that the plesiosaur being a giant marine reptile when it was in existence and they essentially all evidence suggests that they went extinct about 65 million years ago. They're reptiles. And Professor Gemmel's study of the loch did not find any eDNA of any reptile species. So that kind of dismisses that as far as it can do right. as being a possible explanation for the, the Nessie myth. Jason Gilchrist, ecologist and lecturer at Edinburgh Napier University in Scotland. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.